There are things that the pandemic didn't take away, particularly in New York, which is our community and our appetite and our pool of talent that we draw from. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Okay, so Hollywood, Nashville, Silicon Valley, Cannes. Each of these cities is so closely identified within the industry that they are essentially synonymous. The art business, however, has in recent decades become so globally dispersed, so atomized, that there is no one city that represents its dynamism in the public eye. Now, a groundbreaking new study suggests that, despite its widespread character, the art world still does have a single powerhouse capital, New York City. And the Big Apple is now poised to become even more dominant when we finally emerge from the pandemic. The study, called the New York Art Market Report, was conducted by the renowned data guru Claire McAndrew of Art Economics and done at the behest of New York's independent art fair, the 10-year-old enterprise founded by the former gallerist Elizabeth D. Surveying hundreds of estimable art collectors who live in the city, the report, sponsored by the art logistics company Crozier, sheds remarkable light on the resilience of New York's art market while busting a whole slew of myths about the city's art collectors along the way. To discuss the report's findings and to better understand what they portend for the post-COVID era, I'm very pleased to have Elizabeth D. on the show today. Thanks very much for coming on The Art Angle, Elizabeth. Thank you, Andrew, for having me. So first off, where are you Zooming in from? How are you feeling these days? Hopeful. Uh, it's been one week since the election was called. That feels good and, and a relief in so many ways. And I'm tuning in from Harlem, my home here, uptown. So I am in the city. It's a perfect place to be having this conversation. That's exactly what I was hoping for, that, because this is about New York. So... Before we jump in, I want to take a moment to play a little clip for you. A lot of these governors, look at what's happening to New York. New York is a mess. They lost almost 40,000 people. They have a lockdown like you've never seen. Now they're open. It's like a ghost town. Let's get, people, let's get in. And, and so that is very important. People are leaving New York by the thousands. And you could have a hard time ever building it up again. So that's obviously um, Donald Trump, where he is really going after New York. Would you agree with that assessment? <laughs> Obviously not. I definitely don't agree. We all know where the truth lies against the backdrop of our, I'm happy to say, former president. You know, New York is the greatest city in the world. It was the greatest city in the world before COVID hit, and it's going to continue being so. And I think that what the study that we've worked on will indicate to and share with everyone is that the city itself has such an embedded, strong infrastructure that supports collecting galleries, museums, and the art trade generally on a global scale that we are in a great position to think about the future. It's true New York has been hit hard and hit early by being the epicenter of the latest unprecedented moment, but I think that we are going to rebuild and and similar to other times where that New York has had to be really strong, I think this is just one of those times where that strength and resilience will be evident. The report that you and Claire McAndrew have put out, in fact, convincingly presents New York 
not as a ghost town or a dying city, but really this extraordinarily resilient city that remains the best place in the world to buy and sell art right now, but that interestingly may be positioned to become even more important as a marketplace for fine art. Can you tell me a little bit about the idea behind the report, where it came from, and what it hoped to ascertain? Yes. So this project began back in May. So we were, what, a couple of months into COVID-19. We were all very much in lockdown at Hmm. that point. And we were starting to get a lot of information about how the market has been impacted globally, not just the art market, but other industries as well. And I started to think about what will happen after this crisis is over. And we know New York is special for so many reasons, but there are things that the pandemic didn't take away, particularly in New York, which is our community and our appetite and our pool of talent that we draw from. Hmm. And what it's interesting about any crisis, but I think the pandemic really is that it reveals certain truths. And that's something that was really in my years in May. And I reached out to Claire McAndrew, who I respect greatly, who is the author of the Art Basel Report, asked her if she would be interested to look at what New York City is at this time and where we could maybe generate some insight into how we would rebuild. And what I learned from her immediately is that no such report ever existed. It was not as if we had a report from 20 years ago about wealth in New York City specific to culture and ways that we could draw from. So we really did face an incredible opportunity and challenge about how to pull together information for the very first time. And this is obviously a huge undertaking to map out the strength and the unique qualities of an entire city, especially a city as enormous as New York. How did you and Claire go about compiling the data on the art market in New York for this report? You know, first, what we did was we we thought about what the sample needed to be. And already just that discussion revealed so many interesting nuances that make New York very distinctive from other collecting cities. There are the collectors, And we know that more than half of the collectors globally live or have a home in New York City. We already had that data point. My immediate reaction was, well, we should just ask our collectors in the FAIRS database that had been compiled over a decade of our participating galleries accrediting their their clients and really building off of our actual audience, our actual marketplace. And what I learned was that it's usually done from a more theoretical sample that isn't necessarily connected to the context of the study. I thought it made a lot more sense to go to collectors and say, here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. And would you be interested in participating and giving us feedback about what you're thinking right now in terms of the landscape? What is your behavior in terms of your collecting practice? What are you looking for and what do you want? You know, these were questions that I thought were so important to be asking. Then, of course, I had to talk with Claire about things that maybe were new even to her purview, which was the strength of art advisors in in the buying process, particularly in America and particularly in New York Mm -hmm. City. As a former dealer myself, I'm highly aware of their role. We had learned there was not an advisor report either. Mm -hmm. So this became a double opportunity to bring that sample in 
And then Claire was very focused on regulatory and legal uniquenesses to New York City and how that makes it an easier place to transact than other places, even other places in America, like California, for instance. And I thought that was a really interesting part of this as well. So it was really a three-part approach. Okay. So this is a a very comprehensive report, overflowing with data, overflowing with really interesting information. But can you tell me in broad strokes, what did the survey find? What's the tweet version? Well, I think what the survey found was that New York collectors at every level here are really aficionados. For collectors in New York, it's really an activity. It's a subject and a pastime, more than a speculative expenditure. So we now know because of the report how much collectors are spending on art and what they're spending it on. We now know their behavior, their frequency of exhibitions and the amount of art they see in a year, which is astounding to me. We also know how collectors prefer to buy galleries and fairs being the number one in two places for them in terms of preference. We also know how they prefer not to buy, which Mm -hmm. is online, which might be surprising to some audience members. And then we also know that there's a real focus on living mid-career and emerging artists in the city in a way that maybe isn't previously seen or perceived. And we now know how much money advisors bring to the table in terms of their transactional value and their contributions. What were some of the most surprising or otherwise noteworthy data points that really pop out to you? There's a lot of things I found, and I'll just rattle them off just to to give you kind of a bigger picture. As I mentioned before, 90% of the sales in the United States take place in New York. So New York is the undisputed global center of the art market. You know, the U.S. art market share in 2019 was 44%, which doesn't sound high, but it's actually the largest worldwide. 40% of the United States fairs take place in New York. And 60% of artists' estates and foundations in the U.S. are in New York. And that's growing. That number is growing. That's a trending number for sure. The collectors that we sampled have an average of 146 works of art in their collection. Wow. And their average spend per year is $759,000. That is a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah. I can break that down into three main generations. The silent generation at $3.4 million. Gen X and boomers at $600,000. And millennials are spending about Mm $45,500 a year on art. But this is an interesting point that we found. 84% transact at less than 50,000 per artwork. So what that means is there's more transactions and emerging and mid-career artist price points are highly represented in those transactions. Mm -hmm. I think one interesting stat is that of all of the collectors in the world who participate at the highest echelon of the art market, who are routinely buying works, I believe it's $10 million and above, that more than a half of them live in New York. And so we're talking about something like 15, 1600 of these, these mega collectors. And that kind of gives you a sense of the everyday New York art market buying power. What does that tell you? What is your takeaway of this incredible concentration 
of this art collecting wealth in this one city? I mean, it tells me a lot of things. One is that the base of the pyramid is broad and deep, meaning with that wealth concentration that you just described, there are so many collectors for every conceivable potential artwork that's here. That price point of under $50,000 being actually quite a frequent purchase value for collectors here. So even though, yes, the wealth that's present here has the ability to buy at the highest echelon, this is the place more than any other city in the world to further the careers of artists through the collecting process because you have more people mm -hmm. that are tuned in to developing artists in their careers at that level. You have more people willing to take those risks, more people more open and confident to make those purchases. I think we all have a sense that the market has shifted pretty strongly to contemporary artists over the recent years and decades. But this report really drives that home in a big way, doesn't it? Oh, yes. The study pointed at 80% of the collectors we surveyed collections were to living artists, which is hmm. a tremendous, overwhelming majority of their representing the collection, which is great. You know, again, I think it's, it's about supporting talent and innovation in our own time. And I think New Yorkers are very, very enthusiastic about that. There's a real sense of of discovery here. And that's not something you typically read about in the New York Times. It's always very much about highly established, high echelon global artists mm -hmm. or what you would call the blue chip market, which of course is very strong here, but that's not the full story. Would you say there are any myths about the New York art market that this report really serves to debunk in your mind? <laughs> so many. Where do I begin with that? Just because you're a billionaire in New York doesn't mean you're only buying at the night sale Christie's and Sotheby's. You're going to Lower East Side, you're going to fairs, you're participating in museum shows and collecting emerging artists and mid-career yeah. artists as well. So that simultaneity, I think, is nice. You know, one thing that really popped out to me is that when explaining what drives them to collect, very few New York collectors say that they're motivated by the idea of art as investment. And this is kind of interesting because there's so much focus it's put on the investment grade quality of art, the way that it could be seen as an alternative asset. How does that square with your own experience as an art dealer working with collectors and, and talking to collectors? Well, I think New Yorkers truly feel that art doesn't have to be bankable. It just has to be great art. And that's my takeaway, to be honest with you. So basically, the collectors are incredibly receptive across a whole slew of different kinds of collecting categories. Yeah. I mean, when I say aficionado, I really mean it. There's a real interest in being in the know. Huh. And I think that that's also not only good for collectors, obviously, that they have that sense of open-mindedness and curiosity. But I think in dealers, obviously, this is a great place to, for them to accomplish a lot for their artists, but I also think it's great for the artists because they know that their art, which is their life's work, is not seen as an asset class. Hmm. And that I think is fundamentally really important. So another fun stat in there, 
is that so-called new media art, you know, film, video, and digital artworks, was actually the least often collected category, which is not surprising to anybody following the market because it's a little bit of a niche collecting category. But the eye-opening part is that older collectors from the so-called silent generation, meaning between the ages of 75 and 92, were actually the most likely people to collect new media art, twice as likely as millennials. Isn't that amazing? That's bonkers. And <laughs> as a dealer, you worked with famous video artists like Ryan Tricartan and Alex Bagg. Does this jibe with your experience? Were you selling to octogenarians? And <laughs> like, what's going on here? It kind of does. I also was advisor to the Cramlet Collection, and they are in that generation. For those that you know may not be familiar, the Cramlet Collection is one of the most important 20th century video art collections in the world. Hmm. It's not surprising because I think that's the generation that saw the most technological change. You know, just thinking about the evolution of global thinking and how technology mobilized so much of that. I think it's very interesting. Those that have a broader, longer perspective on those shifts over decades hmm. are the ones that are seeing, you know, the 1970s and the emerging of new media to be important. And then to also take that through to today where you have artists who are really fully immersed in the digital possibilities of the medium of video art. So, yeah, I definitely thought you would traditionally or typically think millennials would be the biggest champions of digital artworks being made, but it's actually the older generations that see the historical significance potentially right now and are, and are acting on that. I guess maybe the millennials see video artwork as kind of a less convenient TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting you bring that up because I, I think that we also have seen in the last decade a real strange kind of valuation shift away from photography which in the 90s was, you know, a preeminent, you know, medium that was seeing unprecedented values come out. And now, you know, that I think that that is an area that's going to keep building in value over time, but we did see a radical dip in that understanding of the true nature of photography as well, and I think it comes from social media and the fact that everyone has a camera on their phone. Now, the last great burst of expansion in the art market was really driven by globalization, with art fairs and galleries opening up shop all over the world to lure new buyers and to sell their wares. Going into this post-COVID era that we are hopefully going to be emerging into in the not too, too distant future, this report seems to suggest that there is a strong case to be made for global localization or glocalization, to use the term coined by the Sony founder, Akio Morita, to become the leading strategy for expansion and, and, and innovation going forward. What does that look like? I think that globalization is a bit of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, there's a tremendous opportunity to leverage the interconnected world, the way that globalization has sort of championed. And Yet there's the reality of challenges that most businesses that aren't massively scaled face to do, which is to reach their audiences in so many different places. And mm -hmm. I think that those companies that have scaled through globalization 
have in some ways lost track with their local audiences. And we just went through that scale shift in the art fairs as well. Mm-hmm. It's been very hard for the art fairs to stay authentic to their core base. And I think that with galleries that have made that change as well, it's been a challenge. Mm-hmm. I mean, New York is kind of a unique place. Again, it's an art fair city, but it's not a one art fair city. There are fairs taking place every week here under normal times and in every conceivable genre of art and antiques and collectibles. It's a smorgasbord of of that. So in a way, there's a lot of frequency of the fair system here in a way you wouldn't find in other cities. But at the same time, it's even more accrued to a bespoke kind of attention or platform, partially because of our scale of buildings and and our density, but also because there's so much going on here, there really needs to be a point of view and voice. I'd argue that globalization was really fueled by jet fuel, by travel, especially in the art market, you know, traveling all over the world, going to Asia for this art fair, the Middle East for this art fair. And, And now that there are many indications that People's propensity to travel is going to be depressed over COVID worries for a good time to come. There's also this, uh, you know, increasing sense of guilt around the environmental impact of traveling. Yes. And we now know that you can do these these kind of face-to-face interactions and meetings on Zoom and on other platforms that make traveling to a foreign city to do a deal maybe not as efficient-seeming as it used to. Absolutely. And as my f- good friend, Timothy Varecchia says, you have your passport and you have your iPhone. And that's how you, one navigates the world. Our passports are, are going to be the slowest thing to come back, I think. You know, we will get back there. But as you said, we figured out ways to be more sustainable in our expenditure of travel, you know, with the digital technology growing and our ability to accept that connection as potentially equivalent. I think you're going to see more of that. And I think going back to the idea of the globalization concept, I mean, the dark unintended consequence of art fair globalism in the last decade has been cultural homogenization, this concept of context collapse. Hmm. That happened before this happened. So with that as a backdrop, and then, as you were saying, the jet fuel not being able to snap that back, then we are in a position where we have to think differently about how we attend events and exhibitions. And it is going to be more local. And you see that in the report. I think 76% of New Yorkers said that as soon as it's safe to go back to fairs and exhibitions, Mm -hmm. they want to. But when asked about traveling to art fairs and other exhibitions abroad, that was a much lower percentage. So this report was compiled this year during the pandemic, Um, but it relied on 2019 market data to chart historical trends because that's the most recent annual data available. If you were to have the 2020 annual data, it would show a precipitous decline of the art market because now we're once again in this global economic crisis. And you have some experience with economic crises. You you opened your gallery in 2001 amid the recession from the dot-com bubble bursting. 
And then you experience the meteoric growth of the art market over the next half decade or so until 2008 and the financial crisis. And then it sent the whole market back to the Stone Age again. And lots and lots of galleries just failed. They couldn't sustain the financial pressures. And you managed to survive. How did you get through this period? I mean, we got our asses kicked. How else do I say it? When I started, my and I'm just talking about my generation, there were about 50 galleries uh, that opened around the same five-year period. As you said, we went through two of these recessions, 2001 and then 2008. And by the time we got through the 2008, there were only five of us left. Wow. There was Andrew Kreps, Derek Eller, Michelle Macaron, Leo Koenig, and me. Literally decimated. Our generation was killed through those two experiences. The lessons learned would fill a book. And they were very different crises. And they had different implications. The galleries were in different stages as well. All five of us survived. Looking back at that insane stress, it was the, really one of the biggest learning and turning points. You know, so many things happened for me that made me understand the business of our activity a lot more because I didn't have a business background coming into it. I had an art background. So I discovered that I was an entrepreneur for each artist and that for me, each artist was an enterprise in and of itself, which allowed me to work differently maybe than a typical dealer would on projects with Ryan Tricartan, which you mentioned, but also Adrian Piper. Mm -hmm. And I also started X Initiative at that time with a group of not only gallerists, but artists and museum directors and museum curators and historians. So I tried to bring different things into the gallery model because you could see that the gallery model was a very simple business and it had a lot of upfront costs associated with it that put cash flow as kind of its ultimate live or die indicator. And I think a lot of us, particularly the five of us I just mentioned, got involved with art for far more creative reasons. But you have to face those realities also when you go through a crisis like 08, where it really does come down to, can you economically survive? But I'll tell you, star starvation trains you, you never go hungry again. <laughs> so what did that economic collapse of 2008, what did that do to New York City and the city's collector scene? I think it impacted the city's collector scene more than it impacted New York City. I think 01 impacted New York City a lot more. That was 9-11. And there was a tangible city impact. It was structural. It was national security driven. There was a complexity to it that affected the city. I think 08 was much more about a change toward what I call kind of a conservative collector uh, thinker mentality, which we've seen play out since 08 hmm. and which has contributed to expanding the established part of the marketplace. I also think for the aficionado collector, it felt less fun. It felt less inspiring. It felt heavier. The environment was just not as buoyant or as optimistic during the 08 financial crisis that it was hard to get excited about new things when there was so much hmm. bad news every day. And, and I think that, you know, that's definitely a psychological impact to the collector scene for sure. So, you know, spoiler alert, the, uh, the art market recovered from the financial crisis 
and not only recovered, it, it soared to these unprecedented heights with uh, the U.S. art market bringing in $30 billion alone in, in 2018, which is still the historic peak of the U.S. market. Now the COVID recession has hit us. Havoc caused by the virus is scything through industry after industry. How has it been impacting the art market and the gallery scene? Well, I would say that you're right. I mean, there it was shocking. We went through a really dark period in 08, very dark. And yet the second the economic engine was gaining a little bit of momentum, it sped up tremendously and didn't stop. Hmm. This is different in many ways because you have economic impact to everyone. And yet at the same time, I do believe particularly, and I'm going to speak just from the New York gallery perspective, which is the one I've been most closely connected to over these last months, they're actually doing okay. Have we not had the digital component of OVRs and fairs, even if collectors prefer to not buy that way, I think it's helped mobilize a deal flow and a cash flow, going back to that ever-present magic of the cash flow actually being the really only factor that determines survival of galleries through crisis times. That cash flow has been stronger than Hmm. expected from most of the galleries in New York that I have had the chance to personally speak to. Mm -hmm. With the European galleries, the West Coast galleries, I think whatever was going on in their lives before this happened emphasize that. So those that were in growth periods are still growing strong. And digital Hmm. has actually helped them reach more people. And then there's the question of the city. You know, is the city impacted? It's not a ghost town. Right now, we're speaking about maybe 70% of people are back. The second we have that slight bit of momentum canceling out that inertia it's going to go fast, it's going to go quickly, and suddenly there's going to be a huge market roaring back once we have an opportunity. Because this infrastructure Hmm. hasn't been decimated, because of the things we're talking about are still very strong and fundamental and aren't changing radically anytime soon. Back in the beginning of the pandemic, there were a lot of really alarmed reports that were projecting maybe a third of galleries were going to shut down. But so far, that hasn't really borne out. There have been very few high-profile gallery closures. And now it's interesting that if their fundamentals from the olden days, you know, pre-COVID, are still workable, and if they've added these whole new skills and new sales avenues to the repertoire, it would suggest that the comeback could be an inflection point. I think we're going to have a huge rebound. And I think it's going to be similar to before 01, where there is going to be even more emphasis on the next generation coming up, really getting behind talented artists entering the marketplace. And so when we do have this big rebound, which I'm predicting is going to happen, timed with the vaccine and New York's reopening with fairs and other events, I think it's going to be really quite strong, but I also predict it's going to be different and that I think it will be a lot less conservative than this last run had been. And maybe also some media that has been a bit undervalued in this last run really kind of coming 
forward and getting more equilibrium, which is not a bad thing. It's really time for that pendulum to swing backward. Hmm. Well, this has been utterly fascinating. Kudos on a truly valuable report. And thank you very much for coming on the show, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. Now, uh, for a little coda, let's talk to Artnet News art business editor Tim Schneider, our own in-house data guru, for another outside view on the report. Thanks for coming back on The Art Angle, Tim. Hey, pleasure to be back, Andrew. So this report really focuses on the physical touch points of the art market, the fairs, the galleries, the museums, and the artist studios, you know, where, where collectors and members of the trade do business. Isn't all of this in-person stuff a little bit passe now? Didn't the pandemic accelerate us all into a new virtual post-brick-and-mortar reality? Well, it did to an extent, but I think that what the report really makes clear, and this really gels with what my colleagues and I have been hearing from people, it accelerated us, but we kind of lost control of the wheel at hmm. some point in the process. So what what has accelerated unquestionably is the number of online offerings. But what I'm hearing and what the report reflects is that people are now feeling just overwhelmed by the amount of digital information that is coming at them day in, day out on the art market side of things, which is sort of ironic because when the shutdown originally happened, one of the refrains that you heard from a lot of places was, well, if nothing else, this will force us to take a step back the art fair calendar was getting a little too wild. And now we'll be able to reevaluate and come out with clear ads and really winnow down to the things that matter. And instead, what's happened is that there's even more stuff. You also have these things that are happening outside of what used to be the established calendar. The people are offering so much in such a frenzy that you now have these different events and different players that used to have sort of cooperatively figured out a way so that everybody can at least have a little bit of breathing space. And they're now clashing into one another. And so what we end up with is this situation where instead of slowing down, things have seemingly sped up. And combined with the fact, and I will talk about this more, I think, combined with the fact that the experience of looking at art online is frankly not that great to begin with, you're now getting into a situation where more and more collectors are just opting out, especially now that we are in a place where we can have in-person art experiences again. These virtual art fairs have been the most visible way that the art market has been adapting to this pandemic. But according to the report, these were actually among the rarest ways that collectors have bought any artworks this year, with gallery websites and email being the most common avenue for online art purchasing. So what's the deal? <laughs> what's going on here? Well, I think that there are a few different factors at work here. One of them is just purely to come back to this question of scale, if you compare what's happening in a fairs online viewing room, or to use your different term here, the virtual fair, 
there's just way more stuff than there is in a gallery online viewing room. If you as a collector are already in an environment where you're feeling overwhelmed by the amount of digital content that you're being asked to review, then in that context, a virtual fair is automatically more daunting because there's just even more stuff within that format to look at than there would be in a gallery online viewing room. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is that there's some complexity that we're skating over with our, and I mean that as an industry, our reliance on this term of online viewing room, where we all trot that out as if we're talking about the same thing in every instance. But if you actually look at these things, even within the context of art fair online viewing rooms, Art Basel's online viewing room, entirely different in its format and its user experience and the tools that are available from what, say, Freeze is putting out or Tefoff or literally almost any other fair that you can offer. So it's not a unified concept. And that means that there's a lot of value that comes out of good design and good user experience. And what we're finding in a lot of these online viewing rooms is that it's not necessarily good design and it's not necessarily a good experience. And then that takes us over to the online viewing rooms that galleries are offering. And to me, and from what I'm hearing from people too, that's a lot less about the format of the gallery online viewing room than it is about the fact that the people buying from these galleries just have relationships with the galleries. And in a crisis situation, which we've certainly gone through this year, there is this defense mechanism that kicks in in the art market where people who have been around for a long time know that galleries and artists that they care about are in trouble. And there is an impulse to say, well, I want to support them. And this is something that I saw when I was still working in the gallery world, where occasionally collectors that you knew would know you were in trouble. And even if they didn't particularly want to buy artwork at that moment, they would do it because they knew that you needed the money. And so in a situation like this, where it's a crisis and where collectors who really care about the ecosystem are aware of what's happening, the best thing that they can do, and they know this, is to go directly to the gallery. And so I think what that does is that it gives a priority to galleries' websites because they're just the galleries. It's just a relationship more so than it is a specific technology or a specific sales channel. So were there any data points in this New York City study that you found particularly compelling when thinking about the way that the market is evolving into this new online stage of its existence? Yeah, I'll point to a couple of them. Uh, One was the split that you just mentioned in the last question, which is, just to spell it out in, in data terms, the report found that the most commonly used online channel for buying art in the previous 12 months was through galleries, websites, or via email, and there were 47% of the respondents who were doing that. And that was in comparison to only 22% buying through a fairs online viewing room. And that's a huge split. If we take those numbers at face value, then it tells us that people are twice as likely to buy from a gallery website as they are to buy from an online fair. 
which is noteworthy because what we in the art market have been trained to expect pre-COVID is that the average dealer is selling about as much at fairs as they are selling in their gallery in an average year. Hmm. Those numbers are always a little muddy. We never know for sure. And of course, it varies from gallery to gallery. But you would expect, I think, on a knee-jerk basis for the virtual manifestations of fairs to be a lot more lucrative for the dealers and for the fairs themselves than they appear to be. So that huge split, I think, is something that perked my ears up. Hmm. A related one is that although you have only 22% of survey respondents saying that they're buying from online fairs, 90% of them are looking at art on them. So that's a huge discrepancy Hmm. too. The idea that you have people at least engaging far enough that they can say, yeah, I've looked at this thing. It's fascinating. This report is really full of uh, lots and lots and lots of data points. And, you know, as everybody knows, even the most objective data can be shaped to tell desired stories, uh, even if that's subconsciously. And I wonder if there were any findings in the study that kind of raised your eyebrows a little bit, or maybe maybe you looked at a little bit askance. There are a couple things that I'll mention here. One, but it's not even so much a stat, but it, it comes down to methodology and sample, which is to say that whenever you have a study like this, people who really dig into statistics want to know how it was done and who the people answering were and all those kinds of things. Credit to Independent and to Arts Economics for being very upfront about how they source this data, but they are drawing the survey respondents from the collector side out of a database of established collectors that have been put together by galleries. So that means that there may be somewhat of an implicit bias in the answers towards galleries, because guess what? (laughs) These are people who have already had a very pronounced involvement in that particular sector of the market. Now, I don't say that to invalidate the results. Again, I think the people behind the report are being very upfront about it, and I think that there are a lot of data points that are arguably stronger because of the fact that they are coming from a dedicated audience that is attuned to this particular sector of the market. At the same time, I think it means we should probably sound a little bit of a note of caution when it comes to saying, well, 47% of survey respondents were buying from gallery websites or via email, and that's more than the 36% that were buying from online auctions, because, again, this is a population that is probably more conditioned to support the galleries anyway. Another one that I would point to is this, which is that in this breakdown of the popularity of different online sales channels, there's again that said about 47% of collectors buying from gallery websites or via email. In third place is 32% of them buying from gallery online viewing rooms as a separate channel. And this gets us into a very squishy distinction between what qualifies as a gallery's website and what qualifies as a gallery's online viewing room. Hmm. It's a very subjective distinction. So that's just something to 
to keep in mind. I mean, again, I, I don't think it changes the overall picture of things, but it does introduce this idea again that like, what qualifies as a gallery online viewing room is hard to define and therefore, I think, hard to draw super concrete conclusions about. Let's put the data aside for a second. What do you think is the actionable go out and do something kind of takeaway here? So to me, I think that the report, but from what my colleagues and I are actually hearing from going out and talking to people, is that the antibodies that we thought were going to kick in and save the gallery sector aren't necessarily the ones that have been the most effective. Which is to say that when the shutdown happened, I think the expectation was, well, there's going to be this huge pivot to the online market, and that's the thing that is going to keep people afloat and allow us to survive the pandemic. And there was definitely some of that at the beginning, especially, again, where there was literally no other option. Galleries could not be open to the public. However, what we've seen since midsummer, at which point galleries in New York were allowed to begin opening again, is that more and more we've seen this shift of in-person activity really coming back. And I would argue that there has maybe been as much, I don't necessarily want to say innovation, but flexibility when it comes to offline activities as online activities. So you have things like a number of galleries that are admittedly higher end and can afford this kind of thing, but basically doing real estate arbitrage and saying, oh, I can get a fantastic deal on a space in the Hamptons or in Palm Beach because guess what? The market for real estate right now is in the tank and a bunch of my best collectors fled the city and are staying in the Hamptons. So why don't I go to them? On the more emerging side of the spectrum, you also have these initiatives in various art cities that are really built on collaboration and resource sharing. So examples like Gallery Association Los Angeles, which is this uh, kind of cross-tier consortium of galleries that have joined together to, yes, curate a joint online sales platform, but also we're talking about doing things offline that are about trying to pull resources to create a almost like the, I, I don't necessarily want to say almost the equivalent of a local art fair, but there is some of that spirit there, especially in concert with the fact that collectors are so fatigued by the online experience and ultimately just desperately want to see art in person again. That really seems to be the story that's being told by this report, is that the things that we thought were going to save us, they may have helped us get through the worst of it. They created a bridge to an opportunity to say like, okay, well, now we can figure out ways to actually work within the challenges of COVID, but present something much closer to the experience that we understand now that collectors really want to have, which is seeing art in the flesh and being part of an ecosystem and having relationships as opposed to, I'm on one side of a screen, 
there on the other side of a screen and in between us is a deal. Luckily, we're in New York, so we're going to have a pretty good front row seat for it. Anyway, thanks very much for coming on the show, Tim. Happy to be here. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.